one of the things we do as men together is we begin to talk to them about cultivating a yes. Because when you have a big yes in your heart, it's easy to say no. Mm. Um, and, and taking that with their sexuality. Yes, their sexuality is under attack. It feels like it's under attack more than uh, any generation ever has. Just the overstimulation of all the things they're getting hit with. But then if they have a massive yes in their heart, it's easy to say no. Friends, welcome back to the Become Good Soil podcast. I am really excited to dive into part two of a three-part series where I am circled up with Jonathan David Helser. We have gotten to go through some great conversation, some great stories behind how God wrote some of the most remarkable worship that um, has been produced by him and his lovely wife, Melissa. And in this next episode, we particularly are going to highlight the 18-inch journey, and it's a phenomenal school for young folks who want to go after the heart of God and the heart of his kingdom, and frankly, go after the deep places in their own heart, in their own story. You know, a lot of young people talk about a gap year, of a year of exploration and discovery between high school and university. And there are many ways to live that, but there are a few programs that have really moved me. I have a friend that's in YWAM in Kona out on the big island in Hawaii, and it's been really fruitful, an amazing program. What God is doing through Melissa and Jonathan, through their parents at 18-inch Journey out in the East Coast, um, tucked in the Appalachians. It's pretty profound, pretty supernatural, pretty anointed. And so I do encourage you to check out their school and check out their worship. Uh, you can check that out, jonathandavidhelser.com. But let's dive in, part two of a conversation and worship embedded in this. I think you're going to enjoy. So Jonathan, you and Melissa, alongside your parents, lead the 18-inch journey and from the head to the heart. And obviously you have a residential program for young folks and shorter retreats. I'd love to hear more about what led you into that mission and what you see God doing um, for people in it, why it's so important. Yeah. Wow, we love the school that we lead. Uh, we are actually right now right in the middle of a school. Um, we have 80 staff and students, actually 10 nations right now wow. on the land. Um, we live on the back end of 52 acres in the heart of North Carolina and a ministry my dad started called A Place for the Heart. And we, don't, we have no students in our house, but we can walk down to the school and the students actually live on the land. So they are 24-7 in community, eating meals and living life together. And I, I love that right now we're, this is a decade of the school. We've done the school for wow. 10 years. Congratulations. And more, yeah, you, you've inspired me so much. I love your live in the day, but measure in a decade. Yes. And I really feel that. Like we were sitting with a group of students around our table last night having coffee and they were asking us, how, do, how did you get to this place? And we said, guys, live in the day, yes. measure in the decade. Dream the big dreams, but build faithfully and small and build with the excellence. And I can look at the school and, and see that. And 
It, it's incredible what he's done. The school started from a summer camp. I grew up at summer camps. I really met Jesus at a summer camp with my dad pastoring. And the year after me and Melissa were married, we had built our first cabin on the land here called A Place for the Heart. My parents at that point were in their um, approaching their late 50s. Okay. They, came, they came to me and Melissa and said, hey, guys, we have our first cabin. What if you guys hosted a summer camp and we'll just be here to cheer you on? Any help that you need, we're here. What if you guys hosted it and we'll send it out to our newsletter list? And we had 16 young people sign up. Wow. And that, that was all we could fit in. And we couldn't believe it. We're 20, you know, 21 and 22 years old. Yes. And, but our hearts were burning to see young people not just come have a one-week encounter, but to give them tools to have a lifelong relationship. And because I grew up going to summer camp, and every year I would get saved when I went to summer camp. Okay, okay. I'd get I'd get saved, and then go. I'm going to be a better Christian this year at school, and then I'd have a I'd have a terrible <laughs> year, and then I'd go back and have a one week encounter, and oh. then go back. And and so our hearts begin to really burn. How do we teach these young ones to have a sustainable relationship with Him? And so we we called it the creative worship camps. And it was all around them digging their own well of worship, using creativity from writing to poetry to dance to music, all these different forms of creativity to connect with God, but really to for them to dig their own well of worship that could sustain them through their school year. And they were just one-week summer camps, but we absolutely got ruined uh, to pour into young people at these summer camps. And after seven years of the summer camps, we wanted to do something longer and go deeper with their hearts, and that's when the school formed. We invited eight of our favorite campers that had been to the camp, and they came to do a 60-day school and during their college break during the summer. Okay. And then the school is, has grown from that. That's a little bit of the backstory on the school. The name 18-inch journey is the distance from your head to your heart. And we wanted this to not just be a, a school of ministry but a school for the heart, a school for identity. There's schools all over the world for your mind, but not many schools for your heart. And Proverbs 4.23 has been the, the massive scripture for us that guard your heart with all diligence for everything comes from it. And one of the opening statements we say to our students when they come is, your greatest gift is not your gifts. Your greatest gift is your heart. Mm. And if you learn to guard that with everything, then your gifts will do way more than you could ask or imagine. But this, this school is about you learning to love your heart, to tend your heart, and to, uh, to really grow from that place. Mm. It's interesting, Jonathan. I've sat under your teaching for quite a bit. And what I so appreciate is there is so much head engagement. There is so much growing. In, I guess I'd say growing in knowing, you know, that, it's integration of head and heart that I actually experienced from you. So just to name out loud, you're not saying dismissing all the things of the mind and all of our intellectual learning, but um, I mean, you tur I guess maybe I'd say it is a term Sherry and I use regularly in discipling our kids is we want to mature them as lifelong learners and lovers, that they're learners and lovers. And so what I so appreciate uh, what you do at 18 inch journey is you really do integrate the learning experience from what you said that epicenter which is the heart that's talked about in Proverbs 4:23. Yes, absolutely. 
you know, Jonathan, you know, one of the things you've talked about a lot about 18 inch journey is at core, it's, you know, you have this desire to see sons and daughters confidently take up their identity and live a life inspired by the spirit. And even after a decade, you have these three pillars you talk about of creativity, community, and worship. And we've obviously talked a good bit about worship and touched on creativity and community, but could you say more of even after a decade of exploring, when your goal is to see people transformed for the long haul and to truly mature rather than just, as you said, you know, to get saved every summer at camp, why have you found those kind of foundational blocks to be so significant? Yes. Such a great question. One of our mission statements and our and the core values that we have for the school is that our mission is not for them to just come and drink from our well and drink from the well of teachers that are here, but to realize that their heart is a well that they can drink from for the rest of their lives. And uh, I mean, gosh, the things that this generation is being assaulted with, like no other other generation that's really walked the earth, the noise they're being assaulted with, the way their sexuality is being assaulted, and then to come to a school where the noise is turned off. Uh, we actually have them. We have Wi-Fi here once a week. Wow, that <laughs> it, just just pause there. Really, yeah. really. Yeah. There's a and, place that exists for a millennial generation that they only have Wi-Fi once a week. Yes, and they actually spend more time with us around a table than they hear us doing preaching a message. Wow. Uh, we build the school around the table. We have intentionally kept the school small. So we only have 32 first year students and 15 second year students. And um, all their, we look into each of their eyes, all their stories are being known and they're being fought for. And just seeing how this generation is being fed so much false connection but they actually never get true connection Mm. and seeing how, when they sit at a table and actually have true connection, what opens up inside of them. Um, We say that encouragement is the table that community feasts at. Mm. And uh, these kids are addicted to looking at their phones and seeing how many likes their last picture got, but they actually never drink from the well of true encouragement. And when you drink from that well, you actually then become an encourager. And, and then you, you begin to learn how to go back into the world, whether it's your dorm room or the business that you're going back into, and you begin to build that table wherever you go. Mm. One of the things I reflect on that you're alluding to is that the enemy has never created anything. He simply takes the good and perverts it, right? He t- and so there's a false version of something that was meant to be good or true or beautiful. And as you're talking about this generation where we face unique obstacles. And one of them is, like you said, a false encouragement where you're looking for those likes, you're looking for those numbers, or a false connection where you're wired with so many people, but in fact, it's actually breeding disconnection. You know, you're talking about the noise and the assault on sexuality. There, there are just so many unique and in some ways, some unprecedented obstacles for this generation. I, I want to talk about the flip side for a moment. In this school, as you are working and willing to disciple 
to apprentice the next generation, what would you say are some of the unique opportunities that you see and that you're experiencing as fruit of walking um, as a as a as a king in God's kingdom in this role? Yes, first thing that comes to mind, one of my favorite opportunities we get during the school is we split up four or five times throughout the school into just the men and just the women together. And one of the things we do as men together is we begin to talk to them about cultivating a yes. Because when you have a big yes in your heart, it's easy to say no. Mm. Um, and, and taking that with their sexuality. Yes, their sexuality is under attack. It feels like it's under attack more than uh, any generation ever has. Just the overstimulation of all the things they're getting hit with. But then if they have a massive yes in their heart, it's easy to say no. And so one of the things that we do is when we get them in together, is we talk to them about that scripture in Proverbs, where there is no vision, the people perish. Yes. And the word perish there actually means to be uncovered and naked. Where there is no vision, they're naked and they're uncovered. And so many of these guys have never had a vision of the kind of husband and the kind of father they want to be. And so we have them write out a vision statement. Wow. This is this is the father I want to be, and this is the kind of husband I want to be. And they just begin to dream about it. Hmm. And then we go, and we, we do all this around a campfire, this massive campfire. And we have each man stand up and read out loud, this is the husband I want to be, and this is the father I'm going to be. And, and me, us as a staff, I do it every year. I write my vision statement again, and I dream bigger than I dreamed the year before. Oh, wow. And it's incredible because you have these guys who've never even thought about it. And I had this moment with a second year student. So he did it last year and he came to me last week after we did it. And he said, last year, I never wanted to have kids. I was terrified to have kids because of the father that I had. And uh, when you had us do this last year, I, I just didn't even think I could do it. And he said, now a year later, when I wrote my vision statement again of the kind of father I could be, he's like, I could not stop writing all the things I wanted to do for my children and find a father I wanted to be. And it's just so beautiful. I, the other night I was putting my 15 year old to bed and he said, he said, dad, is marriage just the, is it the best thing ever? (laughs) He's like, I, he's like, I just can't wait to, and he, he was about to fall asleep. He's like, I can't wait to, I can, just he he's a big cuddler. He's like, yes. I can't wait till I, I I have I get to snuggle with her all night. <laughs> oh, that's precious. And and he's been cultivating this big yes in his heart. Like yes. he can't he's such a romantic. He can't wait to be a husband. He can't wait to be a lover. He can't wait to be a friend to his wife. And because of that, he has a power to say no. And after we have them write their vision statement, we just did this uh, two nights ago. When the girls are writing their vision statement, we send them off to a different part of the land and they spend the whole afternoon writing their vision statement. And as after the girls speak their vision statement, little do they know the guys are on the opposite side of the land and we prepare this extravagant feast for the girls. Wow. And we like go over the top, like six course meal. We set the table. It's, it, it's like an unbelievable restaurant and all the guys are working on it all day long. And after the girls read their vision statement, Melissa, my wife says, okay, girls, you're going to spend the next two hours. We're going to do your hair. We're going to do your makeup. We're going to be beautiful. 
and the men have prepared a table for you to treat you as queens tonight. And so it, it goes beyond just writing the vision statement on paper, and they actually get to walk it out in real life and community. And as, and as brothers, we surround them and serve them as queens that night. And the traction that these men get in their hearts when they actually do it and they serve and they love these girls like Christ loved the church, it, it, it messes me up every year. Oh, it's so profound. And like you said, the, the shift that happens for a young man from, I actually don't want to have kids because he's fearful, because he has no vision and what he's seen modeled for him. He just knows, I don't want that, right? Contrasted to having a vision in his heart. How do you cultivate your yes? How do you make the tough choices as a leader and as a king to navigate all those circumstances so that the ministry and the life work you bring, not only to Melissa, but to your children and to your vocation, does truly come out of overflow? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have very intentional rhythms of Sabbath. Sabbath has been such a, I, I, every year I'm learning more and more and more about Sabbath. Uh, the, when I really started learning from it, I was first time cadence was three. I'm reading him, uh, the scripture. I, I, I love to collect children's Bibles and especially as they were younger, just read them through these, these beautiful children's Bibles. And I found this really beautiful one. We're reading the beginning of it and I'm reading about how Adam's first day with God was a rest day. Mm. And Cadence said, Dad, why don't you ever take rest days? <laughs> wow. wow. And I, I love how our kids can preach to us <sighs> and, and mirror back to us uh, our world. And, and I realized we were <clears throat> working way too much in those days. And I looked at him and I said, Cadence, you're going to help us and you're going to keep us responsible for, for rest days. And I didn't put all the weight on him, but I yes. just, yeah, I was really convicted. And yes. our, our kids call Sabbath rest days now That's or, or family day. And if we ever forget a family day, they absolutely remind us that we did not have a family day today. Oh, I love it that they become the advocates for, for life. Yes. And even if we're on a ministry trip and we're, you know, we've, we've had the privilege of doing some from Switzerland to South Africa, to Dubai, to England, to Scotland and Ireland. We've been on these incredible adventures with them. And even in those, we always, we, we have to carve out rest days, family days in the middle of these, you know, and I love that uh, Adam's first day with God, uh, he's done nothing yet. And it's a family day. It begins in rest. You don't work for it, but you work from it. And so Sabbath has been huge for us. And it's, a, it's even a huge part of the 18-inch journey teaching the students. We have a rest day every week, even in the midst of the school and all the things we want to accomplish with the school. We treasure Sabbath. We have beautiful rhythms of really keeping our home sacred. We don't have any staff or students. Some people read about our school and think all our students live in our house with yes. us. Uh, but we don't. We uh, And our staff really protect and respect the boundaries we have at our house. They don't just show up at any point for a counseling session. And we have intentionally kept the school small. We almost, as a staff, sometimes outnumber the students. No. And uh, we've really built the school on the... I love Jesus's model of changing the world. It's It's not the way probably most American businesses would have changed the world, but he picks 12 guys <laughs> and 
he's got the greatest mission uh, any man's ever been given, and he picks 12 guys to surround himself with. And then he takes three that he even gets more intimate with, and he takes one, Peter, that he gets even closer with. And that's how he builds, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we see these moments of 70. And he would go out to the 5,000, and he would have big ministry moments, but he always came back to the 12, mm. and he came back to the 3, and he came back to the 1. And we love the moments that we've had the privilege of getting to lead worship on uh, the last few years. We've gotten to go to some incredible places and lead so many kids into worship, but we come back into family, and we've really built the school on that family model of how Jesus did it. Mm. Jonathan, as you share that, where I go is, well, I wonder what the implications are in your world. So when you're trying to live out that beautiful vision, I'm guessing because of your role, that requires you to probably say no and frankly, be quite disappointing to quite a few people. Can you just speak for our friends out there that are navigating those waters of hearing your vision saying, that's what I want, but at the same time, they just haven't been able to cultivate a no to so many demands. What would you say? How do you say no courageously? (laughs) Yeah, I feel like in the last few years, we've said no uh, so much. Even just the the multiplication, the way God's breathed on the music and it's gone out there. We've We've had so many, so many invitations and one of the big shifts for us, we had a, a, a kind of a spiritual father in our life, a man named Graham Cook. And a few years ago, we just asked him for some wisdom on how to process through what do we say yes and no to. Mm. He said, you know, when I get invitations, when I pray over them, I don't look, I don't pray and say, God, what are the engagements you have for me? I pray and say, what are the assignments you have for me? And so last year when we were praying into 2017, towards the end of the year and we were making our calendar, as we looked through the invitations, we didn't look at which ones could be great engagements and opportunities, but which ones were the assignments that the Father had for us. And then also embraced our limits. My wife struggles with an autoimmune disease and she can only travel so much. And so we, we embraced those limits and said, mm-hmm. this, these are the only trips that we can do this year. And this is, we only can do this many trips a month. And yeah, and, and it gets really practical at times, but at the same time, it's that place of, but what are we saying yes to? Yes. And focusing on what we're saying yes to. And when you cultivate that yes, you, it's pretty obvious what the no's should be. Yes. And I hear you saying that though it's very practical and operational, it it flows from the heart. It flows from this intimacy with God saying, I just no longer will sacrifice intimacy. I won't, I won't throw intimacy with God or my wife or my family culture. Like, as you said, going home to family, I won't throw that under the bus of, of too many assignments. Absolutely. My dad used to tell me growing up, he said, God measures success by how much love is produced. And, you know, eternity is measuring success by the love we produce, not by, uh, I love the Dallas Willard quote, you say a lot, you know, God is not so concerned in what a man does, it's what a man becomes. And it's that beautiful place in family. Family keeps you so accountable for it, you know? Uh, my, my My wife knows when we go to lead worship, if I'm leading from overflow out of my intimacy with the Father, or I'm, I'm just performing. 
And so I love that in doing ministry within family, it keeps you beautifully accountable because they know they know you. They can see through the 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 imposter. They can see through the mask and really see who you are. I think another value that's handed down from my dad that we've you know really worked into our life is that family is success. And being able, I mean, it's an incredible thing right now. We have my son is 15 now. My dad is still here on the land. He's 73 this year. Wow. And it's three generations doing. I mean, my son loves to just get involved in the school and worship with us and pray with us. I mean, he's a total 15-year-old, too. He loves to just get into all kinds of trouble. In the yes. Best. Uh, but at the same time, I, I just, I stepped back for it. We are at a summer camp this summer. It was Cadence's summer camp. My dad was the camp pastor and I got to come in one night and lead worship. And it's just 30, you know, smelly high school kids there at the end of the day and we're worshiping together. And I thought, this is the most successful thing I've probably ever done in ministry. The three generations in this room worshiping together. Uh, that absolutely absolutely was like the biggest paycheck I've ever gotten. And my, it was the first year my daughter was at the summer camp and to be there with three generations. Uh, oh. That's success. You know, family is success. It, as you're speaking, Jonathan, I'm feeling so much permission in my soul because I believe that, but it almost feels like I find myself trying to justify that to the world to say, um, I'm really sorry I can't get to X, Y, and Z, which are simply assignments that aren't from God, because I am putting my family first as though it's like an inconvenience or, you know, being dutiful when the truth is, as you're saying, if all the places you've led worship all around the world for decades to be in a smelly room with a bunch of stinky high school kids because you're in the power of generational um, kingdom movement with father, with son, with grandfather, a grandson, gr- granddaughter. It's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And it's, it's messy too. You yes. know, there, there's so much tension in doing ministry with family. There's tension in doing ministry with your spouse. But I love that without tension, you can't make music. If, if I took my guitar right now and I took the tension out of the strings, it would make no music. It's in the, it's in the tension, not too much tension because that breaks the strings, but no tension at all and they can't sing. And, mm. and, and I don't want to paint a picture that it's, man, doing ministry with my parents for the last 20 years. And they are more in a retired mode now. They're like grandma and grandpa cheering us on. Yes. It, has, it hasn't been easy. It's been one of the hardest things we've ever done. But there's been this beautiful grace to tune us in the tension to release what David said, one generation shouting the acts of God to the next generation. There's been this song of harmony, the song of honor between the two generations that has been so worth the fight. Mm. And now my 15-year-old and my 12-year-old daughter are like getting to be a part of it. I had this moment the other day with Cadence. We were leaving for this event that night. And you know those moments where you don't plan well and you're leaving the house late and you thought you could accomplish more than you could and you're running out the house late and it's just bad planning. And I am trying to get the kids in the car and we finally get in the car and I'm backing up the car down the driveway and Cadence goes, man, dad, you sure huff a lot when you're frustrated. He said, you haven't said anything in the last 10 minutes, but I've been hearing you huff for the last 10 That's minutes. Beautiful. And, uh, 
And I, and I, it was just great. The Lord caught me in the moment and I just kind of smiled. I said, you're, you're absolutely right. I do. I said, you know, but you're going to huff less than me. (laughs) And that's the beauty of what's going from one generation to the next. And he, and he goes, I don't, I don't even, I don't huff now. I said, well, let me ask you this. He loves doing outdoor work with my dad, their neighbors. He loves working in the yard with my dad. I said, who, who huffs less, me or Paul Paul? He calls him Paul Paul. And he says, whoa, you huff a lot less than your dad does. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. And I said, the beauty is, is that you're going to huff a lot less than me because you're going to go further than me. And he said, but I don't even huff now at all. And it was like a day later, his sister was doing something to him. And I heard him upstairs just huffing and puffing. And I said, hey, Cadence, what are you doing right now? <laughs> and he goes, oh, my gosh, I'm doing it. I'm oh, doing it. It's so great. <laughs> But, you know, I, I think that's the that's the beauty of what I was saying earlier about my dad hasn't been perfect, but he's yes. pointed me to a perfect father. I haven't been perfect. I, I have some incredible stories with our kids, but I'm pointing cadence to the father. Yes. Um, and he's going to point my grandson and his grandson and his grandson. And from each generation to the next, just more glory is coming. Mm. And what I hear that's so hopeful you're you're not only pointing him to the father, but you're becoming the kind of person that has an increasing intimacy and extravagance with the father that he looks at your life and says, I want that. I want that, right? It's a bigger story. And so even as he's growing, like you said, he's a he's a 15-year-old and there's a certain reality to to that stage of maturity. But you're giving him a vision of of what it can be like to be in the father in your late 30s going on to 40 where he looks at your marriage and he goes, I'm excited to be married. Yeah, yeah. Can I share one more parenting story with you? Please do, please do. I'm so proud of my son and my daughter. And we did for his 12th uh, or 13th birthday, we did, you know, kind of a a spiritual bar mitzvah type of thing, initiating him into his manhood. And we had the whole community gather around him. I bought him Aragorn sword. That was the final gift we gave him. The whole it was two hours of the community championing him and saying, "Your teenage years are going to be the best years of your life. You have what it takes." And it was an incredible night. And at the end of the night, I just got so emotional, and I, I begin to think about that moment where Jesus, at twelve, his parents lose him for three days. You know, yes. um, talk about a marriage moment between Joseph and Mary. I can't wait to watch that DVD. Yes. They, they lose God for three days, you know? And, <laughs> and and then when they find him, they realize that they have lost Jesus in a sense because Jesus has found who his true father is. He says, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? And when we had that moment with Cadence uh, at 13, I realized like there is something beautiful that I am losing Cadence now for him to find his true father, to find the father of fathers. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And so I I just, that night just, just really wept as I went to bed, realizing like, gosh, these 13 years have been incredible with him, but he's becoming a man now. And there's a place where I'm stepping out of the way. So the father of fathers can father him. And, um, two weeks later, we're at this conference, we're leading worship and we brought the kids along. We're in Nashville. And, um, on the front row of the conference where the kids were sitting, there was a, a man who was deaf and they had never seen a, a deaf man before who was getting translation and signed to the entire conference. And they asked me about it and I explained to them what it was. And the last night we're leading worship and after worship, 
Cadence comes up to me. He said, hey, Dad, uh, I want you to know I, I, prayed, uh, I prayed for that deaf man the night while you guys were leading worship. Mm-hmm. And I went, wow, that, that's amazing. So, and he runs off because he's playing with some friends and just being a 13-year-old. And later that night, the interpreter uh, came up to me and she said, I want to tell you something. Um, I am very good friends with this man who's deaf, and he's had many, many, many people pray for him. And tonight, your son came to me and said, can I pray for him? And, and I said, yes. And, and, and your son prayed for my friend for over 30 minutes. And she said the compassion that he walked in, I've, I've, I've never seen a, a, a boy that young walk in this type of compassion. Mm. And healing wasn't an agenda for your son. He wanted to see this man meet the healer. You know how people can pray for you like you're just a, a, a check on their list. Right, you're an object. Yeah, and and I I have never been so proud as a father. You know, me and Melissa were like, oh my gosh, we are so proud of our son. And we went to bed that night, and we were all sleeping in a room together. Uh, it's the beauty of traveling as a family. Yes. And uh, we're all in a room together, and we get up the next morning, and we're packing our bags up. And Cadence goes, Dad. Uh, I had a dream last night. I need to tell you guys this dream. And you know how when you wake up in the morning, you're kind of reliving the dream. He said, last night I had a dream. And in the dream, I was walking down a hallway and I knew I needed to get home. And I went and asked one of my friends. I said, Joel, how do I get home from here? And Joel said, go to the end of the hallway and there's a library there. In the library, you'll find a book and the book will take you home way quicker than you could ever walk. And so I, I walked down this hallway and and he's telling us a dream, me and Melissa and my daughter all listening. He said, I walked down the hallway and I opened the library door. And when I walk into the library, there's a desk and a man turns around at the desk and I see that the, the man at the desk is God. And you could hear a pin drop in the room. <laughs> We're like, you saw, you saw the fall? He said, yes. And he begins to get emotional. And he says, I saw him and he, and he looked at me and he said, Cadence. I am so proud of you for praying for my son who was deaf last night. And tears begin to run down my son's face. Tears are flooding out of me and Melissa's eyes. And he said, I'm so proud of you. And, and of course, my daughter, she kind of interrupts the moment like a good second more. And she's like, yes. okay. And she just tells a joke, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I, it was two weeks after we had had that moment of just initiating him into his manhood. Yes. And two weeks into it, he got the smile. And, and we were wrecked. We we're like, some people live their whole life and never get that smile. Like, you, are, you, you see the smile, you know the smile. And it, it was one of the greatest parenting moments I've ever had mm. because I lost him to God's smile, if that makes sense. I, I gave him to God's smile like Hannah gave Samuel to the temple, you know? Um, I haven't given my son away. We're, we're best friends, and we're going to be best friends his whole life. I'm going to fight for that. But no one's ever going to fill that hole like the father of fathers fills that hole in his heart. Yes. Oh, and I hear just the, the words that come to my soul as you're sharing is, it works. It really does work. There's a way the kingdom works. And there he's standing on your shoulders and so much of it is a culture of uh repentance so much of it is ownership over your shortcomings and as you said you're pointing him to a father where you can turn a generation into more intimacy more life more abundance in his kingdom and there's so much hope in this jonathan we're talking about some really deep 
topics and some really pretty intimate things. I want to take a risk and ask you about another conversation we had privately with our wives over a meal. I'm just, I feel like moved by the spirit to go there today. As you mentioned in an earlier portion of our conversation, Melissa has had some pretty big health struggles and debilitating illness over the years. I'd love to hear if you're open to sharing a little bit more of the background of that story and how it has shaped you and how it's shaping you as a man and as a husband. Yeah, absolutely. And and Melissa is really open about this this journey and this battle that she's fought with her her illness. And so, you know, in, in no way am I opening up something that she doesn't talk about. But since we first got married, we'll be married 18 years this April. She, um, I, in the first couple months of us getting married, she discovered that she was battling a disease called psoriatic arthritis, which is psoriasis of the skin, but also arthritis of the bones. I didn't know anything about psoriatic arthritis. I knew a little bit about psoriasis, and and the psoriasis really did begin to spread across Melissa's body. We had a a moment where almost eighty percent of her body was covered in this scaly, uh, terrible disease. But the worse than the psoriasis has been the bone pain. There's been moments where she's like, babe, I can't open this jar. I can't hold the baby. I can't even open the toothpaste tube because of the bone pain. She's had, in, in, in the years we've been married, she's had to have foot surgery on like seven of her toes that have just been curled and crippled from the, the joint pain. And uh, yeah, it's been so, <laughs> I mean, so many tears have been wept just watching uh, the one you love suffer this much. And it's been the hardest journey that I've, you know, it's it's been way harder than I ever thought. But at the same time, the father's been way, I know gooder's not a word, but he's been <laughs> better uh, than I ever imagined. And he's, and he's met us and he's called our tears and he's wept with us and he's walked through us through the, through the shadow. And we're still in the tension right now. She's had breakthrough in her body with some medicine at times. And there's been moments we're so thankful, but we're still not satisfied. She's still not fully whole and well. And there's some limitations she has. But it's like the more this sort of sickness is pointed at her, the more I see her like a David on the battlefield. You know, the the sword that Goliath pointed at David became the sword that David picked up and cut the enemy's head off. (laughs) And I know the giant regretted that day he pointed the sword at David because the sword he pointed at David became the sword that took him out. And I, I can see it over and over again that sickness will regret the day it pointed its sword at Melissa because the songs, the life, the message, the way she's going after the father is releasing something so special. But in that, it's there's nothing more painful as a man to watch the person you love the most suffer and the journey it's taking me on in my heart as a man is early in our marriage I just wanted to fix it you know I would try to fast I would try to pray I would try to do all the stuff to just fix her as as a man I like to fix things it's satisfying to fix things and it's brought me to that moment over and over again where I can't fix it I can't pray hard enough I can't fast hard enough and make her whole and in that, it's led me to, to really discover what prayer is, really discover what trust is. I remember the other day I was praying for her, and I'm praying with all my heart because I just want to see the one I love whole, you know? And as I'm praying, 
God interrupted my prayer and he said, son, do you believe that I want healing for her more than you want it? Mm. And I realized that's what, that's what faith really is. Faith is believing God actually wants it more than I want it. But we're in this mystery and, and we have a lot of why questions. And I've realized a lot of why questions don't get answered on the earth. I know when we see him face to face, these questions are going to be answered. And I think maturity is learning how to, in the middle of the tension, in the middle of the storm, lay down and really trust him, if that makes sense. Mm. Graham Cook said one thing to us, probably in the middle of the darkest part of the wilderness for us. And he said, you know, I've come to discover that God allows in his wisdom what he could easily prevent in his power. And I'm not saying the father's made Melissa sick, but somehow something's been allowed to forge something in us that is going to cause uh, sickness to regret the day it pointed its sword at us. <laughs> um, but my heart as a husband and as, as a lover has as broken again and again and again. But the resilience and what's come out of my bride, I'm so proud of her. One of our songs that she wrote called Explode My Soul, she wrote this song on our ninth year anniversary. And this was around our eighth year anniversary. She started a medicine that took a lot of the bone pain out of her hands. And the doctors actually told her when she first was diagnosed that she would never play the guitar. And eight years in the marriage, she said, babe, I, after I've started this medicine, I can actually, I can feel in my fingers again. I, I, I'd really love to get a guitar. And so as a husband, I, I couldn't wait. I went, I went out and just, I was looking for a guitar that was made for her. And I was looking on Craigslist, found this 1979 Guild guitar. Mm. Melissa was uh, born in 1980, but conceived in 79. I and I called the man about this guitar, asked him, I said, hey, can, can you tell me about this guitar? I already love the way it looks. It looks like my wife's brown eyes. Uh, it's this beautiful sunburst finish. And he said, well, I don't know if you're a Christian or not, but I actually bought this guitar when I was a part of Keith Green's ministry. And we wow. used to use it in our worship during our community meetings. <laughs> wow, come on. <laughs> and I said, I'm come coming on. to get this guitar right now. <laughs> and so I, I get the guitar. Our ninth year anniversary it was our, my gift to her. And when I gave her the guitar, I said, babe, I just want to leave you alone with this guitar because it's, it's not just for me. It's from your father. And this is a moment. And, and she grabs the guitar. And when I walked out of the room, she said she leaned down into the guitar and she said, I know there's songs inside of you. You must give them up. And that I came back that night and she had written this whole song in, in one setting called Explode My Soul. And the chorus of the song says, explode my soul, explode with praise. What he promised is what he gave. And the song is about the promised land that he promised and watching the giants flee as the father gives what he promised in his faithfulness. And I love that every time that song is played, wherever it's playing, I know the enemy regrets the day he ever pointed sickness at my wife as people sing what the father promised is what he gave. Oh, Jonathan, I, I'm just, I'm a wreck. And um, what's so beautiful, a big part of the story you just told, I wasn't aware of, but I can tell you there have been times where I've worshiped to that song. And there's a few songs that get me up dancing like a wild man, like David dance with his mighty men. And I'm not much of a dancer and it's probably not much to look at, but I go 
ballistic with praise and an explosion that comes from the inside out. And it's a, it is a song of victory, right? And in the face of my enemies, like I will set my face like a flint. I am so moved to hear that introduction. Yeah. Well, as a husband, this, this is a song from my wife and whom I'm well pleased. And recently I, I got to be on a ministry trip and I got to sing one of Melissa's songs while I was on the trip because she wasn't on the trip. And while I was singing it, I, I felt Jesus say to me, he said, I get to do this with my bride songs too. I sing them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so as, you, as we go into the song called Explode My Soul, this is the song of my bride and whom I'm so pleased and whom my heart is fighting for. Prison thoughts They crumble 
Holy Spirit, Father, Jesus, I'm asking for one thing and one thing only, to live in your house, that I would live with you in you my whole life long, that I would consider deeply your beauty, that I would be your student. God, I want to know the quietness of that place. I want to know the security of that place in a noisy world, the perfect getaway from the buzz of traffic. God, you hold me. You hold my head and shoulders above all those who try to pull me down. I'm headed for the place, God, for your place to offer anthems that will raise the roof. God, we sing God songs and we make music to you. God, you've always been right there for me. I ask that you would not turn your back now, that you would not throw me out or abandon me. You've always kept your door open to me. God, I want to see your goodness in the exuberant earth. I want to stay with you. I want to take heart. I want to not quit. I will say it again. I want to stay with you. God, you are refuge and your strength. You are ever present, Psalm 46 says, in times of trouble all the things rising up in me even now through participating in this conversation, in this worship. God, what are you saying? Where are you leading? Where is it that you want to shine your light? God, my heart matters to you. The scriptures say, above all else, guard my heart, for from it flows the wellspring of life. You live in me. Make your home in me even deeper, God. I ask that you would protect my heart and allow the treasures that are being seated in there, even now to be protected and nourished apprenticed. Show me what to do with what you're doing in me. I give my consent to you. I give you permission and I give you access to all of me. Friends, thank you for joining Jonathan David Helser and me, Morgan Snyder, on the Become Good Soil podcast. This is part two of a three-part series where I am having an amazing time in the studio with Jonathan, walking through worship, walking through his story, walking through God's story. We'll be back really soon with a third episode of this three-part series. We hope to see you again soon.